Welcome to the Jelly Pops Book Club, where we read book-to-screen adaptations and compare them to their screen counterparts. I'm your host, Julia Washington, and if you're new around here, I am a biracial writer and podcast host based in California. When I'm not facilitating this book club, I'm recording Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, Pouring Candles, or Painting Greeting Cards, all while trying to convince my dog to snuggle. On today's episode, we're diving into The Last Unicorn with our guest, Jackie Hayes. So a little bit about the book before we get into our topic. The Last Unicorn is a fantasy novel written by Peter S. Beagle. It was first published in 1968. It is the story of a unicorn who believes she is the last of her kind and embarks on a quest to discover what happened to other unicorns. In November of 2018, Atlantic Books published a review with this headline, The Last Unicorn, still one of the best fantasy novels. The reviewer went on to say, quote, it's not epic fantasy, but applied fantasy, which is to say readers aren't supposed to get lost in its invented world. We are supposed to import its lessons to our own world. In this uncertain age, when truth and falsehood are just rapidly converging talking points on the same blurry continuum and wishful thinking is hope mixed up with reality, The Last Unicorn urges audiences to do the things that need doing anyway, muddling through as best we can, end quote. So a little bit about our author. Beagle was raised in the Bronx and he graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a degree in creative writing. He is best known for writing The Last Unicorn and is the recipient of the prestigious Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and Mythopoeic Awards. I don't think I said that right. I'm so sorry. And a World Fantasy and Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America 2018 Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master, among other literary achievements. Okay, so before we dive into the discussion, let me introduce you to my guest. Jackie Hayes is a launch consultant with a bit of strategy and coaching. Who wants you to love launching? She partners with her clients to create custom launch processes that tap into their strengths, skills, personality, and lifestyle. She is the host of the podcast, Here's What I Learned. When Jackie isn't helping others launch their programs, you can find her reading, walking her dog, or enjoying all things Marvel. Okay, now here we go to the discussion. Talk to me a little bit about the the first time you saw The Last Unicorn and the impact it had on your childhood, because it has like, because uh, to expand a little bit, when you and I were kind of talking about what topic for you to come on, when you mentioned The Hobbit, I immediately was like, we should do that one. But then I was like, no, because I, I'm not ready. But then when I watched The Last Unicorn, I was like, oh my God, uh, unlocked childhood memories sense memory is completely unlocked and it's an era that I completely forgot about. And so, yeah. So anyway, so I was like, yeah, let's talk about it. Tell me about the first time the impact it had all the things. 
So I don't actually remember exactly the very first time I saw it. I was, oh goodness, when did it come out? Like 82-ish, Yeah, I think. somewhere around there, 82, 84, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so if it was 82, which sounds about right, I would have been seven years old. Okay. Um, and I know I didn't see it at like a theater or anything like that. I saw it on regular TV. We must have at some point in my childhood when we actually had cable. Um, and I remember any time I saw that it was on, I would watch it. Mm -hmm. I was mesmerized by it. Um, I was one of those little girls that had all the unicorn things ever. Love um, that. Yeah, and I and a lot of that came from two sources: uh, the Serendipity books, if anybody mm -hmm. remembers those, um, the Morgan Me, Morgan Mine, all of those, and then also the Last Unicorn. It was just. You know, if there was something about unicorns, I then had to have it, had to watch it, had to, you know, read it, et cetera. And I know that a lot of my love of fantasy also came from watching that and watching like The Hobbit, both of which the screen, the screenplays for those cartoons were written by the author of mm -hmm. The Last Unicorn. So yeah. they had the same feel to them and the, the, animation was very similar to yes and i think that's why when i turned on the screen version of the last unicorn i was like we could have picked the hobbit and because the same emotions would have hit <laughs> yeah yeah all the same nostalgia yeah i was like i was trying to avoid the hobbit because of the emotions that are attached there but the last unicorn hit them too <laughs> yeah. when did you discover that it was a book because did you see this the film version first or did you read the book first so I did not realize, and I don't know how, because I'm probably sure somewhere in the credits, it says adapted from mm -hmm. some, I mean, in my childhood, I didn't pay attention to the credits, right. who does, um, even as an adult, sometimes I don't, uh, and I don't know what it, I even don't remember how I realized it was a book. I think maybe I was watching the movie as a grown up at some point and was like, oh, ah, this is a book. Um, and so I did not read the book i checked my goodreads and according to goodreads i did not read it until 2009. wow so there was a huge span of time between first watching the movie and actually sitting down as a grown-ass adult and reading the book yeah what was it like though to discover it was a book because i know when i'm like oh i loved this movie and then you're like oh shit, that was a book do i read the book I and mean, you you read the book but like what was kind of the process you went through yeah, so you know how it always is when it comes to like, you saw in one format and you're kind of nervous about seeing it or reading it in the other format. Usually it's the other way around. Like you've read the yeah, book yeah. and then you're gonna watch the movie and you're terrified that they're gonna destroy it. Um, but this was, you know, this was a beloved cartoon movie that had such a huge impact in my life. I don't even remember now at this point how many times I've seen the film. Like literally if it was on TV, I watched it. Um, then to discover it was a book, it was like, well, that's interesting. And I'm really curious. I was, there was no fearfulness because I, I tend to find with the exception of like practical magic, uh, which the book and the movie is nothing like alike. Right. Um, usually I like the book version better. So it was like, oh, okay, well, let's see. And I think there was such a huge um, gap in time from the last time I'd watched the movie to reading the book mm. that they felt like two complete different entities. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And there was so much paraphrasing that had to happen to make up the book, even though it's a children's book, so not very long. Mm -hmm. They still can't fit all of that into, you know, a cartoon that yeah. I don't even think was a full 
two hours. It was I like, think probably it's like an hour at the most. Yeah, I think it's an hour 30. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was and surprised about too, because I feel like the 80s with children's movies, with animated stuff, they really did keep it short. I was shocked when I yeah. saw how long it was actually. Yeah, because usually that in that time frame they were like an hour usually, mm -hmm. so it was, it was a longer one. So for me, yeah, they were like two separate entities, two different things because there were so many more details um, in the book. I felt like some of the characters were different, like their personalities, their quirks mm -hmm. on those lines were different from the book to the movie, like uh, the magician, the wizard felt a lot more serious and a lot, mm. a lot less comedic um in the book than i felt like he was the comedic element in the movie like the, yeah. the goofball to, to bring lightness to it and while he didn't feel like a heavy character in the book i don't didn't feel like he was inserted for that comedic relief mm. so. interesting i wonder what the decision was there to sort of change it because what i what we found what i found i guess you could call it research because i read a lot of book to screen adaptations and compare them when the author is very closely tied to the screen adaptation, there really isn't a huge vibe difference. Mm -hmm. And I hate to use vibe because it's not a concrete example, right. but that's what it is. Because when we read something, we have emotions, we have a mood, there's a tone that we feel. When we read books, mm -hmm. same thing. And that's the mm -hmm. disconnect. When we read, when we read a book, if the film doesn't hit the same tone, we immediately are like, that's trash. Why did they do this? They ruined it. That's usually mm -hmm. the root of the emotion. And then we can build on from there. But he wrote the screenplay. <laughs> the author wrote the screenplay. <laughs> yep, very much so. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's somewhere in there, there was a decision to either, it, and again, it could be my interpretation of it sure, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the author's interpretation of trying to take this character who has developed through 200 and some pages and condense them down to an hour and a half movie where he makes limited, you know, I mean, he's a fairly big character in the movie, but there's only so much time they can put for him so how do you condense all of this this one character into a movie and that yeah. may have been like the author thought the in a book those comedic elements are spread out so they may not feel as in your face mm. but he may have felt like bringing those you know what a few times that that happened in the book into the movie because for him maybe that was the most important element of him yeah so i mean it's like taking a person like reality tv shows it's all in the editing you know yeah. this person seems like a bitch um on on what you watch on tv and you did not see the 400 hours worth of time that they were not that way right so. right kristen cavallari has a story about how she, if she had known that they were casting her to be the villain she wouldn't have done it because the footage that they cut together very much makes her the villain of laguna beach and the hills <laughs> which is you and know all of us would be like that if we yeah. if we were to take chunks of our life that would happen so <laughs> mm -hmm. totally totally um i i do want to kind of pivot just real quick away from our our uh, outline but the animation is so like uh, it, it's so bright it's so colorful it's so whimsical mm -hmm. of the of the yeah. screen adaptation and i'm curious about if the book was that descriptive because I, I haven't read it yet it's in my queue yeah 
Yeah. Um, I went back and I got to reread this to prepare for this. I did not get all the way through the book, but it was a very descriptive book. Oh, and not that. in a like an annoying way. Sure. But like you really understood, for instance, it starts with the unicorn in her forest and it goes through this journey of her being like, wait a minute, she overhears a conversation that she's the last unicorn. And it's been a while since I've seen the film, but I felt like this introduction of this idea of her discovering that she was the last unicorn and her journey in that was much more prolonged and mm. therefore much more emotional mm. in the book than it was in the movie. Like it was like this whole, like, I need to know and, you know, finding herself go, you know, trying to avoid the villages, but occasionally, you know, having to be seen, but nobody saw her as a unicorn because nobody believed in unicorns any longer. Right. And all of that, like, wait a minute, then what am I? Who am I? It was just seemed to be so much more in the book than it was in the in the movie. But that animation is the same kind of animation that you see in The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. It's a very distinctive, like you saw that kind of anima animation during that time frame. And for me, whenever I see animation like that, it immediately brings me back to my childhood. Yeah, it's totally generational, generation defining, because when you look even just 10 years later at the way animation, not just only evolved, but how they, the way that children's television is getting animated in 1994, it's so different. And it's not, I want to back, I want to walk back and say, it's not necessarily the evolution of animation. I think that because like The Last Unicorn and the Hobbit are rooted in sci-fi or not sci-fi, but fantasy. It lends mm -hmm. itself to a different type of tone yeah. because when I watched mm -hmm. it, when I watched the last unicorn um, for our chat today, I immediately was like, okay, what present day does this kind of re remind me of? And Steven universe came to mind and the way that Steven universe mm -hmm. was animated um, but that's also a very specific show for a very specific audience. So it, it doesn't, it's not like, what am I trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. In the eighties, there was a very clear, like, this is the animation for children. And then mm -hmm. here's animation for like, there's the Disney animation and mm -hmm. then there's everybody, yeah. <laughs> everybody else, but the everybody else was felt more whimsical. I, and I hate, cause you know, like. Fantasia's whimsical, you know, yeah. you've got some Disney whimsy, but like the way that the last unicorn and the Hobbit are whimsical mm -hmm. only to me, it feels like exists in fantasy. Yeah. You don't see that. And as we're talking, I'm remembering, and I cannot for the life of me remember them, but there was like a whole genre of uh, illustration during mm -hmm. that time period that was fantasy based. It was a huge movement at that time. I mean, that was about the time the D&D came out. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of fantasy that was going on, high fantasy especially. And I do remember there being um, cartoons that were more adult driven cartoons right. at that time along those lines. And um, Oh, well, there's an artist whose last name started with a B and I can't remember, but they all kind of had the same color tone. Mm -hmm. They all kind of had the same just feel to them. Um, but as you were talking about like what kind of animation today, I look at it and a lot of times I see a little bit of anime in it. Oh, um, yeah. 
the last unicorn if you look at the characters they're bigger eyes they're very thin slender thing you know people there's just to me like a lot of and even like the way they move feels very much like anime to me so it feels like big research of that so yeah that's a good point i'm not i don't consume anime in the way that say my offspring does but in what mm -hmm. i've seen yeah i could see that mm -hmm. i can totally see that holy buckets and the colors are bright but but they're also toned down they're not right. like primary blue mm -hmm. they're still a bright blue but it's not primary blue like you would see in pokemon or whatever right so. right because the last unicorn is literally like here is every bright ass color you could imagine and in the beginning i was like this could like if someone was on mushrooms this movie would freak them out <laughs> Very much so. That's just what we're going to call the that genre of animation, that style of animation. If you were on mushrooms, this would freak you out. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about my childhood where we had HR Puff and stuff and, right. you know, the dragon, whatever. I the magic dragon. magic dragon. We had a lot of puffing going on in mushrooms. Yeah. Childhood, it seems like so. That's a really good point. And then, and then the nineties showed up and everyone freaked out and they were like, what did we do? And you're just like, it's too late. You opened that door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like maybe you already answered this a little bit, but when you first read the book, you already mentioned that because it was such, uh, such a great time distance between having seen the film and having read the book, but did it, impact your feelings at all about the movie like did it change the way you felt about the movie at all i don't think so um because it had been so long that i there were elements that i couldn't like if i, I was reading the book and i'm like was that in the movie or wasn't that in mm -hmm. so it was only like the big theme that i was like okay the big theme is still the same yeah um, and i recognize these characters but I wasn't able to say first, you know, sometimes when you watch, read a book and watch a movie back to back, you're like, you can be like, this is wrong. This is wrong, wrong, quote unquote, yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, I think of it as wrong. Um, and you can see the little fine elements, like they mm -hmm. didn't say that, or a different character said that, or those kind of things. And there was such a wide um, time period between the two that as I was reading it, I couldn't say like, oh, that wasn't in the movie or, oh, that was different in the movie. Like I remember slightly different tone difference. Mm -hmm. um, and if I hadn't just recently reread the portions of the book, I wouldn't have even remembered that the, like that, that some of the characters were slightly different to me mm -hmm. in vibe. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I really like your point though, about how the distance sort of makes it so that the way they're their own entities, like they've become their own um properties because it is really yeah. hard when you do have a book that came out you know within a because I want to say books still get discovered within three years like it may have come out in 2020 but maybe someone like it's still commonplace for someone to like discover it three years later versus you know well I don't know we just have so many books getting published nowadays it's never I don't have enough time but versus when you have something like for example the color purple which came out in the 80s and you know it got a screen adaptation in the 80s but now it's getting a, another adaptation because they adapted it for um to be a musical and then that musical is getting a screen adaptation so it's kind of like we have a generation far enough removed from the original book that maybe yeah. all they know is the oprah winfrey danny glover movie yeah. Whoopi mm -hmm. Goldberg, I can't forget her. Um, 
versus like right now we're recapping lessons in chemistry for our free community. And that book came out, I want to say in 2022. Sounds right. Sounds right. So it's, so it's still fresh in people's minds. People yeah. are still reading it. It's still, I think it's still on the bestseller list. I'll have to confirm. So yeah. watching that screen adaptation, the book is fresh in my mind and it's very clear mm-hmm. like yeah. what the changes are. But if, if when I go in and watch the color purple, I would not be able to tell you what the differences are from the book, unless I go back and reread the book, because it's been 20 years since I've read the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I did not, wasn't able to be like, okay, this character felt a little different or this felt a little different Mm -hmm. um, until I finished the book and then went, okay, let's watch the cartoon again. Yeah. Let's watch it again. And that was when I was like, oh, here are the differences. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So how do you feel the book and or the film holds up now? Because when I watched the movie, I was like, I feel like this is other than parents freaking out and like nowadays being like, no, this is a, this looks too much like a drug trip. Like that was my first thought. <laughs> but I don't know. Some parents might be into it. I don't know. <laughs> really? I don't think. Um. I think it holds up over the years as much as something like Little Mermaid does. Mm. Because in reality, if you if you read the book or you watch the movie, there are some crossover elements between Little Mermaid and in this situation in that yeah. her ability to be able to communicate and the love story and all of that, it feels a little bit Little Mermaid, Mermaid to me. Okay. Um, just because, I mean, she wasn't really able to verbalize and communicate um, as well, you know, because she was a unicorn, she thought differently, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, so that element, I feel is, you know, it's, it's a classic to me, I don't, I don't watch that or read the book and think, oh, this is, yeah, this, this is, you know, bad or whatever. I mean, it's very white. There is that I, yeah. there isn't a single uh, character of color, it is heteronormative. Mm-hmm. So those those things are there, but to me, the last unicorn is very similar to Snow White and Little Mermaid and all of those things. It was um, it's a modern fairy tale. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel, and I feel like that's very prevalent when you watch the film. Like, oh, this is a fairy tale. We are definitely in a fantasy land, um, which is kind of fun sometimes. <laughs> But you hit on you especially make a, right about now. <laughs> yeah. But you make a good point about like it being very white and very heteronormative. Cause I feel like fantasy really didn't start getting diversified until the last handful of years. Like I can't think of mm-hmm. any fantasy books from my childhood that weren't very clearly rooted in some version of patriarchy or misogyny. <laughs> and like well, the cast think- is completely white. <laughs> If you think about like here in America, we were introduced to Grimm, yeah. which is all in Europe. So it is going to be all white. It is all going to be patriarchy. There's going to be elements of the Christian church in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not until you actually look for other fairy tales, like actively seek out fairy tales from other cultures mm-hmm. um, that you're like, oh, fairy tales exist in other cultures and not everybody is um white generally there's tends to be heteronormativity in, in most fairy tales that are yeah. set back in time. um there might be some queer elements if you're not if you're looking um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but 
Yeah, in the United States, it was all based on Grimm or Aesop's Fables or Hans Christian Andersen, mm-hmm. um, all based in Europe. So yeah, 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 all sad little weak women needing to be rescued, sort of. I mean, Red Riding Hood, some versions of her, she is a badass and takes control. <laughs> well, and a lot of them, if you read the original versions, they're gory and yeah. they're a lot more independent uh characters and they got they've evolved so much over time and some of the fairy tales even you can go back and you can see that they're actually based on mythology from that mm-hmm. area mm-hmm. so they were actually you know gods or goddesses but it's just like the mythology that was taught in my schools it was all greek mythology and right. roman mythology we didn't learn about you know mythology from india we didn't learn about we didn't even learn about um indigenous people from the land i live on we didn't right. even learn about any of their mythologies so yeah of course we're only gonna also teach the white stuff in the schools so. mm-hmm. it would be interesting not to pivot back to whiteness but it would be interesting if they did do a uh closer to the text version of some of these fairy tales because they are like you said they are pretty gruesome they are pretty intense like the cautionary tale for children to be good is very very clear but it's so scary it (laughs) to the point where i'm just like like this is definitely like a very brilliant tool of the church to get people to fall in line and behave and not question yeah yeah i mean yeah if you look at just all the versions of little red riding hood and there is some serious gruesomeness and in just that one story alone, Cinderella, Snow White, both of them are pretty gruesome as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them. So it's it's I it's one of the things I love to do is go back and look at some of the more original states mm-hmm. of fairy tales, but then also reading modern retellings of fairy tales yeah. and fantasy and mythology. So yeah. So I would love to see somebody do a retelling of something like The Last Unicorn, which is still pretty modern because you know it wasn't that long ago it was a couple hundred years ago it was within my lifetime that it was written um but i'd love to see somebody you know go okay culture has changed let's do a retelling um and how that might change the story from our current modern perspective yeah i i love retellings now we're getting away from our topic but in general i love retellings because it's so interesting to take a classic t- classic if you will I'll use that in air quotes because again we're taught the classics are from white men from europe um and make them more fun like you know william shakespeare my favorite i own so many versions of taming of the shrew it's not even funny like whether it's a no. book or a movie i don't know why that's my favorite but it is and I just love the way that when you do bring a current lens to an old story and the creativity Mm -hmm. that's within that, I think that's a level of creativity that people don't appreciate in the same way as we do of original creativity. And Mm -hmm. man, if someone, if someone's listening and they decide that they want to do a close reading of the last unicorn and do a modern retelling, we are here for it. (laughs) Well, and I always love the retellings when it's from the point of view of the villain usually because women are cast as the villain so right. i like that and i'm like there's a backstory on this so it's like with the last unicorn the villain is the king but also the red bull mm-hmm. it's like oh what if they told the story from the perspective of the red bull maybe the red bull was not really thrilled with what he was tasked to do right. uh, and how did he feel about that <laughs> so. yeah see we've already got your story prompt for you 
Go out there and write it. <laughs> Go out there and write it. And then contact Jackie and me and we can interview about it and we can read it with you. It's gonna be great. Well, Jackie, I'm so thankful for you for one, bringing up this topic, The Last Unicorn. I didn't realize how much I needed a flashback to the 80s. Uh, <laughs> and, and two, for coming on and talking about it just in general. And um, I would love for you to tell our friends at home where they can find you, follow you, support you, and keep up with you if they want to. Uh, the easiest place to find me, except for in the last couple of weeks, yeah. is on Instagram. I'm generally pretty regular on there, especially in my stories. So it's Jackie Hayes underscore OBM. So. And we will link in the show notes so it's easy for you to find it. Jackie's going to be on our <laughs> sister show, Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we talk about Inside Out. When that episode airs, you'll want to take a, take a listen because it's a really great episode. So find Jackie, support her work, see what she's up to. She offers a lot of really great information if you are launching things, which is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> doesn't hard. have to be, though. doesn't have to be, and she makes <laughs> it easier for you. I want to thank my guest Jackie again for coming on the show. She's also going to be on Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we discuss Inside Out. It's December, which means we do not have book club this month, but we'll be back in January. If you are craving our book discussions, join us on Patreon and listen to our book club replays. If you love our show and want more of it, you can join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Julia Washington, and you'll get bonus episodes every month, a live month a live monthly book club discussion, access to those replays, and so much more. Just look for the book club tier. If you're not ready to commit, no problem. You can join our community for free and still get content, just not as frequently. Also, our next virtual reading salon is December 16th at 2 p.m. To get the info to join, you got to get on our mailing list. You'll be sent the links a few days before. Our first in-person reading salon is coming in February of 2024. Tickets will be on sale very, very soon, and you'll buy those at juliawashingtonproductions.com. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time.